Elisha has anointed a, uh, actually Elisha has appointed a son of the prophet, last time we read that title in the Old Testament, uh, and he, so that the man could run to a man named Yehu, that's his name, J-E-H-U, Yehu, uh, at Ramoth Gilead, it was the place, by the way, where um, a king, the previous king, or the current king has actually been injured and the previous king had been killed. He flees like a drive-by anointing. He goes in, he anoints this guy that's a commander. Hey, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And then he just, just jumps. He's gone like a drive-by anointing. And then, the only, so he's, by the way, the only anointed king of the north of the 19 kings. The commanders that are with him say, what's going on? And that guy's like, well, you know, that guy's just a little crazy. But he's dripping with oil. And they're like, come on, spill it. And he's like, all right. Um, they told me that it'd be, he told me I'd be king. And all of his commanders jump, and they jump behind him. By the way, everyone seems to be jumping behind Yehu in this. He heads to Yezreel, where the current Israeli king, his name is Yoram, is recovering from a battle wound um, from a war uh, with Syria and the king there at the time, Hatzil, who, by the way, had also murdered, who was a commander who murdered his king to become king. Uh, As he nears the city to go and take on this king, two messengers are sent and they both fall in line behind him as he drives fast and furious. Yehu now uh, is on his way in, and everyone that they send, obviously, is getting behind Yehu as well. So the king, now rather concerned, emerges and comes out himself. And a full-on arrow through the spine, from the back, through the heart, boom, Yoram is killed in the garden of a guy his mom had killed to get. But bonus! Judas is compromised. King Achatziah was also there dropping off the flower basket, and booyah, two down. He pulls in there, and actually now that both kings are there, there's Jezebel in the window, painted up like she's going clubbing. Yahoo calls the two eunuchs that are beside her, or at least the eunuchs that are beside her, tells them to be men, and she takes the quick way down, escorted quickly by gravity. Jezebel shows her even uglier side, her insides, to the wall, to the ground, to the horses, bland, three down. Even all the paint that she had on could not hold Jezzy together, and all that remained was the emblem of her influence, her head, her hands, her feet, the very things that she tried to put everyone under. But the dynasty doesn't die just because its head does. You've got to wipe out all the heirs. And this is why the enemy's gone after Israel, and it's why the enemy will go after you. Because if you're going to have a successful coup, you can't have a family member living. It's 841 BC, and a full-on Yahu is in a purging rampage. That's what we've seen so far. And that takes us to chapter 10. This is what we read at the beginning of chapter 10. And you should be able to find that as well. Now, Chav had 70 sons in Samaria. And Yehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Israel, to the elders, and to those who reared Achav's sons, saying, As soon, now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons... Choose the best qualified of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. Now, you do understand what he's saying. There are heirs to the throne, and according to this, there's quite a bit of them. Achav apparently was a very busy king uh, and doing more than just conquering land. And with that, he goes, well, you can pick whichever one you want to be the next king. I'm going to kill him anyway. And so with that, you guys have everything that you need to try to keep things in order. You've got the, the fortified city. You've got your weaponry. You've got it all. But I just want you to know, I'm a coming. And with that, and I, I imagine, yeah, well, that's how I picture, yeah, he's kind of just talking like that. I'm a coming. 
And with that, uh, you know, he's telling Israel, which by the way, I remind you, was where the king was, this is their response in verse 4. But they were exceedingly afraid. And they said, look, two kings could not stand up to you. How then can we stand? And he was in charge of the house, and he was in charge of the city of the end, the elders also. And those who read the sons said to Yehu, saying, we are your servants. We'll do all that you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is right in your own sight. You, have, you see what happens here, right? Yezreel white flags it. That's what they do. They're like, you know what? It'd be stupid to fight you. If those guys couldn't stop you, we're certainly not going to be able to stop you by putting a kid on the throne and making him start this whole thing. And it's important to note that the Valley of Yezreel, by the way, today is called the Valley of Yezreel, by the way, you can actually still call that. And it also happens to be on the, roughly at about 8 o'clock, if you're looking at it from the perspective of a map, there is a place called Megiddo. Megiddo, by the way, there is a hill. Megiddo is actually, I think it's a little unfair because it's actually a tell for the most part. Uh, archaeologists call things different things. Uh, they'll, they'll look at a hill and it'll say, is it a natural hill? If it's a natural hill, they'll call it a har. Har means hill. If it is a hill because there was a civilization and it was destroyed and they built another civilization and it was destroyed and it was another civilization and it was destroyed, they call it a tell. And if it's a hill and it's actually exploding, they call it a volcano. You probably knew that one. All right. Now, the reason I say that is the Tel Aviv is, or sorry, the um, Megiddo today as we know it is a tell. It is a city upon a city upon a city, ruins of them. But they still call the hill Har. And it's interesting because Har Megiddo, or the hill of Megiddo, is where we get the term Har Megiddo from, or Harmageddon. That valley in between there is the valley that, according to prophecy, that it will be up to the horse's bridles and blood. Now, this is not God saying, yippee, I can't wait to turn this thing into a giant blood swimming pool. God's just telling us the truth, not endorsing the battle. It's important to note that. It's actually, I do love that Ezekiel tells us, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God did not rejoice when Hitler died. Because God desires no one to perish, but all to come to repentance and desires all men to come to a knowledge of him. He's not slacker, as some would consider slackers, but he's patient, long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And he has been patient with all of us. As a matter of fact, Paul, former Christian killer, says it this way in 1 Timothy 1. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. The Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The word is adake. It means primary. If you put it before an angel, you have an archangelas, or an archangel. If you put it before a builder, the word for builder is tekton. So a primary or first builder is an architecton. That's where we get the word architect from. And that's the word Paul uses. If you were to line up all of the sinners of the world, starting with, you know how you can, when you pull up something and you can sort it by price or by relativity or by location, if you have pulled up sinners by worst first, he says, I'd be the first name to come up. And he's not bragging. Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience and his example for those who believe on him and receive eternal life. I love what Paul, he didn't just say that Christ Jesus died to save me to show his unlimited grace. 
In other words, as far as paying for sins, his bank account is unlimited, and he doesn't have a problem. It doesn't matter how filthy you are. It doesn't matter how rotten you are. It doesn't matter the things that you don't even want to look at when you look back and you think, I would pretend like that never happened. Because I know that the most horrible monster I've ever seen looks remarkably like me. That's my story, by the way. Paul says, you know what? Jesus didn't just display his unlimited grace. He displayed his unlimited patience. Now you have to recognize, to exercise patience, it takes that horrible word, time. In other words, there were many opportunities where he said, no, 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 no. And God's like, I'll wait. I'll wait. In his case, he was arresting Christians and saying, deny Jesus and I won't kill you. Deny Jesus and I won't arrest you. Some did. He said, and I caused some to blaspheme. He goes, but there are others that were like, you can't kill but the shell, man. Because the part that you can't touch lives forever. And every time he had to deal with one of those and still say, nope, that doesn't make a difference. Jesus was patient. And every time that person invited you, Jesus was patient. And every time, let's, hey, by the way, it wasn't just before Paul said this. And that's the important part to know. Because even after Paul gave his life to Christ, and he had been raised as an arguer, he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest sage of the time. They called him the truth of the Torah. Halal's grandson. By the way, reigning president during the time, president of the Sanhedrin during the time of Jesus' trial. He, he knew how to debate, he knew how to argue. But that's not the way that anybody comes to Jesus. Jesus was patient. Now, I grew up violent. Can you imagine? That would be me like saying, if I could just beat the hell out of you, literally beat you until you say yes to Jesus. And God's like, that's actually not the ministry I have for you. And he's patient. So here again, Christ Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example. Tipo is a type for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Because you know, Jesus died and saved me so you couldn't possibly say he wouldn't save you. With that in mind, we are in a situation here where there is a man, Yahu, and he is full on. He is as full on as a man's ever been. Israel has been divided, as we would know, Israel is divided into the north, ten, the ten tribes of the north, the south being called Judah, from where we get Jew from, the term Jew, and it is uh, basically Benjamin and Judah and the renegade Levites, and now the two of them have been so interchangeable at this point through marriage, political marriage and such, that, that you can't tell the difference. Please hear me in this. You can't tell the difference between a person surrendered to God and a person who isn't, because there's nobody really that surrendered to God anymore. It is amazing the places people will go with things like, and I, I don't want to debate on things like Genesis 6 at the moment, but it is amazing the places people could go and not see the obvious 
which is there is a clear delineation between people who are actually with an open heart to the living God and those who aren't. To those who aren't, Jesus is patient. To those who are, Jesus is patient. But when those that have surrendered to Christ, and please understand, we didn't join a political movement, and we didn't just join a church. We were slaughtered at the cross and reinvented. And to be honest, I'm very into that. He gave us everything. But the weirdest part is the new creation that looks nothing like the old one. When we try to actually try to make it look more like the one that Jesus slaughtered. It is confusing to the world and should be. Imagine walking into a hospital, A&E, and you've got maybe an hour before whatever it is you have is going to take you down. But you can't decide, you can't delineate the difference between a doctor and a patient. That would be a rough place to be. Imagine walking into a mental hospital and not being sure Actually, that's more. I've been in that situation. You know, where you're not really sure which is which, and just because someone's wearing the coat doesn't seem to make a difference. And the only reason I say that is, is that obviously when you need help, you need clarity on where to find that help. I lifeguarded since I was 15. They make you wear red shirts. Now, look it. With all due respect, I just got to let you know I got melanin envy. Just going to make that clear right now. Because you can wear red shirts and it looks good on you. Me? I look like a tomato in a red shirt. And most of the guys in California, by the way, that are lifeguards, they're my color. And they wear those red shirts and it is not flattering for any one of us. It isn't, in other words, we don't wear them because it makes us look good. You wear them because nobody else has that color red unless they're from Germany. <laughs> but it isn't their clothes. <laughs> they just actually haven't seen the sun and they lay out and they turn that color on their own. Uh, so, but the point is, is that when a person starts to be in trouble, and it's, most of the time it's not a drowning person in the, on the sea, by the way, though there can be that. Sometimes it's just trouble, people are being jerks and trying to set dogs on fire or whatever it is, you know, on the beach, because people do things like that. And they want to be able to find somebody to be able to intervene. They're going to look for the guy in the red shirt. And the reason I say that is, is separating you out of the situation is really fundamental. And unfortunately, the situation we're in at this particular point is those that are actually supposed to be surrendered to the living God look no different from the world. It's then that God has to do something drastic. It will always be these kind of circumstances. But with that, this guy, by the way, he has removed the two kings and the queen. And he's got some other people to clean out here now. But he goes, he shows up in Jezreel and he's like, There's, you've got these 70 sons of, of Echad. Any one of these guys could take the throne at any given moment. And he knows it. He goes, so if you guys want to do this, let's just cut to the chase on this thing. Let's not play games and, and talk for 60 hours over this. Pick your king, let's fight. And they're like, there's no way we're going to fight with you. And so, okay, well, what do you want us to do? Verse 6. So they wrote a second letter to him saying, well, if you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the young men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel about this time tomorrow. And now the king's sons, 70 persons, they were great men of the city, and those that were rearing them. So it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, 
and sent them to him in Israel. And the messengers came to him and said, hey, look at this. It's like the picnic of heads. They have brought the heads of the king's sons, and he says, laid them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Why in the world does this guy want a couple piles of heads? My first thought is he's Scottish, but that's not the case, and that's only because apparently that's how golf is invented. I'm ta- by the way, I learned that here. I was told that by Scotsman. Uh, just so you know. It's important to note everything he's done so far. When it's come to the king, and the second king, and Jezebel, and this situation, they've all been public. They've all been very, very open outspoken statements in front of everybody else. You all with me? And I want to remind you, just because God's writing it down does not mean that God says, this is what I want you to do. I'm not asking for you to start collecting heads and making them center places or, you know, to put them beside your door. Just because God records it does not mean He actually approves of all of this. But I understand what He's doing. I'm not saying I agree either. He's trying to run a coup here. So it was, verse 9, at the morning he went out and stood and said to all the people, all, you are righteous indeed. I conspired against my master and killed him, but who killed all these? He goes, look at you know what? Now what he's saying is, I'm not a righteous guy, is what Yahoo's saying. He goes, I killed the king to get his spot. You guys, I did it for me. But you guys, you did this to save everybody in the city. Now I know that nothing shall follow the earth of the, of the word of the Lord in which the Lord has spoke concerning the house of Echaz. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant of Eliyahu. Now, verse 11. So yet who killed all who remained in the house of Echaz in Yezreel, and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests, until he let none of them write. Now, do you really have to kill the priests? It's important to note, by the way, that God does make a comment about this guy in regards to this. And you can get so caught up in actually trying to make something happen, it's like you just start closing your eyes and swinging. In Hosea, chapter 1, verse 4, listen to this. When God speaks to Hosea, some of you are familiar with the story, a man marries a prostitute and then has a handful of kids, gives her every reason to stay, but she has a wandering heart and will not stay. Though he has hedged her in and blessed her like she's never been blessed before. And God's great on, on word pictures. He goes, you do realize that's my relationship with you guys. Because I've given you every reason to stay. And yet you still have this wandering heart that's got to go after something else that clearly can't be as good as what I'm offering. But this is what he says in, as he's talking about naming the kids. In Hosea chapter 1 verse 4, the Lord said to him, I want you to call this boy's name Yezreel. Same place. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Yezreel on the house of Yehu and bring an end to the kingdom of those of Israel. Now please understand what he's saying is that this is so gratuitous, God's going to have to pay him back for it. So when we're reading this, somewhere in all of this, in his purging, he's gone well beyond where he was supposed to go. Does that make sense? There's a difference between justice and just gratuitous slaughter. It is now moved from 15 to 18 on the, the ratings as we watch this, if that makes sense. Now, verse 11. They will kill all the remaining in the house of Achad in Israel, 
and all the great men and close acquaintances, and his priests until he left none of them remaining. And he arose and departed and went to Samaria on the way to Bethaked of the shepherds, yet who met with the brothers of Ahazia. I remind you, that's the king of the south now. Now he's got more than that to kill. Even though he's not taken over the king of the south, he's not taken over that land or any of that, he's going after all them too. And it says, yet who met the brothers of Ahazia, the king of Judah, and he said, well, who are you? And they answered, we're the brothers of Ahazia. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. Do you know who the queen mother is? That is Jezebel. It's like funny. You should actually go take a look at her. I'll tell you what remains. Her head, her hands, her feet. Notice verse 14. He says to them, take them alive. So they took him alive and then killed him at the well of Bethlehem. Forty-two men and left none of them. Why didn't he just kill them there? Right? You've got 42 of these guys. They're like, hey, we're the king's sons. We're going to go see the queen mom. He's like, well, that's good enough for me. All right, guys, kill him. Why does he have to take him to Bethlehem? Now, Bethlehem is a city. And this is the point of all of this. Is this man, Yehu, is full on. But he's full on in public. And everything he's got to do is big. And is grandiose. And it may look exciting and it probably would starve in diesel or something like that, but it's all in the public. And it's one thing to kill a bunch of guys that, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the yes or no, I'm talking about the methodology, but to bring it in front of a whole lot of other people to do it in front of an audience is a whole other thing. Verse 15. You're probably aware of the fact that I'm preparing us for something. Now when he departed from there, he met Yonadav. The son of Ahav coming to meet him, and he greeted him, and he said to him, Is your heart right, as my heart is toward your heart? Huh. For what it's worth, if those of you familiar with the book of Jeremiah know that the Rechavites, by the way, were very righteous people. They were people that were so sickened by the compromise of the world around them that they backed off away from it all and basically said, We're just going to do it another way. And so when he looks at this particular guy, this is, a, this is a photo op at this point. This guy is in essence a bit of a rock star among that group of people. It would be like in the 80s and you're, you know, and you're like trying to prove you're like anti-establishment and you're like, I'm just going to stand away from everyone and somehow in all of that, you like embrace Sid Vicious. I mean, there's always something, you know, it's like, think about it, if you were going to be like big on Black Lives Matter and that's your issue, and I'm not, I'm, you know, the point is, there are certain people you could get a picture with and it instantly puts you in a whole new category, if that makes sense. And it's, it, no matter what the purpose of your cause is, there's going to be somebody that's already your poster child, and if you jump near him in all of this, it's going to give you some kind of street cred. That's just the way it works. I mean, there's certain situations where it's like, you know, if you get shot, you're going to have a little bit more street cred, or if in this situation you do time, you're going to get a little bit more street cred, or you get your picture with this person, you're going to get some street cred. Well, that's what this guy's doing at this moment. He finds this guy who's clearly a separatist, who stands against the establishment for a decent reason, and he says, hey, so is your heart right like my heart is right? Now, it's a duh in this case. It's obvious that guy's heart's right. The question is whether Yahoo's is. Does that make sense? So he's like, well, if that's the case, give me your hand. The answered it is, who says, all right, well, if it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand and he took him up into his chariot. Yeah. Notice what happened, man. He just, he just pulled him into his own limo at the moment. Checking who I am, right? 
So, you know, I want you to know I want to be an evangelist and I want, I want you to know I'm serious about God, so I'm going to pull Billy Graham into my band and we're going to get pictures taken. Look at there. We Hello, Billy. You don't, you don't mind, Billy, if I take a selfie, do you? All right, Billy, look holy. Billy, look holy for a moment. I'm going to look like I'm reading my Bible. You know, I mean, it's like that kind of thing is what he's doing here. And this is going to be key. Verse 16. He said, no, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him right in his chair. Let me prove to you that I'm the real deal. You know how Yo's going to prove to anyone that he's the real deal? He's going to kill some people. That's what he's going to do. Verse 17. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all that remained in, in, uh, to in Samaria. So he destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken. Now, it had been prophesied, by the way, prior to this point. So they spoke to the Yahoo. And by the way, for what it's worth, God had not only promised that that would happen, but Ahab, for a moment, repented. And in that, he says, well, I'm not going to do it right to you, but it's going to happen to your family. It's right. you, know, you know what Ahab's response is? Okay, well, that's cool, as long as it doesn't happen to me. So come and see my zeal. Verse 18. Yahoo gathered all the people together, and he said to Ahab, serve Baal a little. Yahoo will serve him much. Yahoo will serve him much. And you think, wait a minute, what? How did that happen? Well, don't worry. Keep reading. Now therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all of his servants, all of his priests, let, not, let no one be missing. For I have a great sacrifice to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. Remember that, because whoever is... Never mind. So yeah, who acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshippers of Baal. He goes, look, if you don't show up at this party, we're going to have a Baal ball. And if you don't show up, I'm going to kill you. What they don't know is when you show up, he's going to kill you. So, verse 20, Yahu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal, and they proclaimed it. Then Yahu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came. So there was not a man left who did not come. Now, I don't know how many that is. So they came to the temple of Baal. The temple of Baal was full from one end of the house to the other. It was standing room only. They said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments. For the worshippers of Baal, by the way, they wore fancy robes. It's important to know. So they brought out the vestments for him. And Yehu and Yehondadav, which by the way literally means God enlisted him or recruited by God, the son of Achab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there's no servants of the Lord here with you, but only the worshippers of Baal. That would have been my first clue. So they went to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Yehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside. And he said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape shall be his life for the life of the other. In other words, if anyone tries to get out, kill him. Because if they get away, I'm killing you. And by the way, I'll be honest. If Yehu told me that, I would take him seriously. Because the one thing we know about the guy is he's really good at killing people. He's like, I'll kill you, I'll do it. And I'm like, I, I believe you. Actually, your rap sheet's full of killing people. Now what happened, as soon as he had made an end of the offering to the burnt offering, which I think is interesting, he'd actually even go that far, that Yehu said to the guard and to the captains, go and kill him. Let no one come out. And they killed him with the edge of the sword. And now if the house is that packed, I don't know, it's, it's there's, there's something a little impressive in a very weird way about the fact, have you ever been on one of those trains and it's rush hour and you, you're crammed in like this and imagine someone just yells, okay, go ahead and kill him with your sword. And you're like, 
it's a logistical nightmare for what it's worth, but nonetheless. And it says, so they, they killed him with the edge of the sword, then the guards of the officers threw them out, and went to the inner room of the temple of Baal, and they brought out the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. So they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuge dump to this day. You, you know what a refuge dump is, right? It's a big pile of poo. So, this is what he has behind him. He has the one city, remember, with two big piles of heads. And then he has one place that was a former Baal temple that's now one big pile of poo. Thus, Yehu destroyed Baal from Israel. Now, if it had ended here, we could say, well, the guy was full on. There's no doubt about it. He was full on. But it doesn't end there. The rest of this chapter, and if notice, we're not, we only have a few verses left, are very disturbing. You know, the rest of it should be disturbing in the sense of how many people he's killed. But this is the part that just doesn't reconcile. You hate when you realize it's like this guy was way, way into what he believed God was calling him to do. But verse 29 says, however, and that's a bad however. However, Yahu did not turn away from the sins of Yeroboam, the sin of Nebat, who made all of Israel sin, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. The northern kingdom, after Solomon, the ten northern tribes, knowing that the people might come down to Jerusalem. And if they did, they worship God there, they would turn on him. That was what the king was saying, Yeroboam. Decided I need to make it easy on them not to go down to Jerusalem. We need to make it convenient and we need to make it tangible. Listen, we need to make it convenient and it needs to be something you can touch and feel. Something you can see. So we can get you there. You'll never go where you're supposed to. Three times a year, all of Israel was required by God to come to his house for three feasts. For Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. For Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. And ten of the tribes aren't going anymore. That is a bad percentage. One person would be a bad percentage. Because there's these two gold cows. The historians of the day, and I'm not going to put as much emphasis on them, but it's important to recognize this. They were actually saying that it wasn't that they were worshipping another god. They were actually trying, well, at least the way it was marketed. I would say it's another god, but the idea is, the way they were marketing is you could still worship the same god you just have to do it through this cow. Which is weird because they came from Egypt and one of the major gods that was worshipped there was Apis, which was the cow god, which I remind you, they made a golden calf in the wilderness while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments. And the first of those was, oh, no other gods, please, just me. I love you and I'd rather not share you. And he gets down there and he's like, wow, we can't get past the first one. Now, let's be honest. Is God mean because he wants all of you? Imagine getting married to someone and they're like, no, you know what, actually, Tuesdays and Thursdays, are, they work with me. That doesn't sound like a really great marriage to me. I didn't marry my wife because what I really wanted was to kind of see her sometimes. I'm going to spend the rest of my life with her. 
I've heard it said, and I think it was Oprah who said this, and it's one of the only, the only times you'll ever hear me quote her, uh, with all due respect, is that she will not believe in the God of the Bible because he's jealous. Now, she has probably had jealous people in her life, and she's like, I wouldn't want to worship a God who gets jealous. Now, her understanding of jealousy is very different from God's display of it. But please make this clear. You can't be jealous of anything you don't want. I don't like coffee. Don't hate me for it. I am not a coffee person. Tastes like dirt. Always has to me. So, you know, here's the crazy part. Those of you who know me know this. I get free coffee almost everywhere. I don't know what it is. People are like, you know what? You seem like a nice guy. Have a coffee. I just think it's God just laughing and laughing. But if you were like, I just won a lifetime supply of Starbucks coffee, I am not going to be jealous. Because it's not something I, I, I want. I'd say, well, pick my wife up a mocha here and there, and we'll be, I'll be really happy for you. I'm not a fan of country music. Don't hate me for that either. I was raised. My mom was a jazz singer. I was raised on jazz. And there was, in the general viewpoint of Chicago, where I was born, country music was like musical illiteracy. Now you're welcome to like it in your headphones with noise canceling if you're going to be around me. I'm not going to be jealous if you just won two tickets to the Divorce Me COD Slim Willie Wiccan whatever train car truck tractor pull rodeo yippee kaye thing. I, you're welcome to and isn't the point isn't whether you like it or not the point is it's just not important to me and I'm not jealous and I wouldn't be jealous about it. God is not jealous of your stuff. He isn't like, dang, what I really wished is I had your wallet. The only thing God's jealous of is you. Because it's the only thing He really wants. And I'll be honest, if God wasn't, I'd be concerned about this love thing that He says He has for me. And God's like, yeah, go ahead and sleep around and spiritually and go and just play the field spiritually and do whatever you want spiritually I'm cool and then just come home when you're done and take a shower you know really do you really think God would do that go and sleep with the world all you want I'm cool with that we have an open relationship God's like no I didn't send my son to be tortured to death on a cross so that, so that you could kind of like me because I want you to know I full-on love you. Now, please hear me in this. There were those who would say, then it's not really the proper worship of a false god, but the false worship of a proper god. It really doesn't matter. What's clear is God had set the rules in engagement, and they were making up as they went on. Or, worse yet, borrowing it from a very sorry model. Now, verse 30 says, The Lord says, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, in the sense of taking care of the house of the Chav, you've done to the house of the Chav all that was in my heart. Your son shall sit on the throne of the fourth generation. We'll see that. The problem is, now he has this security. He knows he's not going to be dethroned if he's got a son that, and his grandson and a great-grandson that's going to sit on the throne. And I want to warn you in this. A wandering half in the heart 
is often most displayed in comfort. In comfort, yeah. It's like an addict. You know, the worst thing an addict could have is money. Because even if he has the strength, or he thinks he has the strength at the moment to not to say no, it's a lot easier to say no when you can't afford it. When we get to the story of Hezekiah, what we'll find out is Hezekiah had a lot of battles to fight, and as long as he was fighting battles, he was doing great. And then God's like, okay, get your house in order, I'm going to take you home. And he pouts, he turns to the wall and he pouts, and he's like, come on, man, I'm the good for you, come on, man. You're okay, right? Come on. How in the world, how is this fair? And what he does, God's like, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll give you some years. But he does more than just give him years. He banks him. He gives that guy all kinds of comfort and riches and wealth. And he becomes a real doofus. Because now he has the freedom to be what his wandering heart was already wanting. He just didn't know it. Now, the reason I say that is, is when you find yourself in that place of great comfort, you often tend to feel like you have the room to roam. But when your heart is half in, it will wander. Yahu took no heed, verse 31, to walk in the law, the law of the Lord God of Israel. He was already doing things differently anyway. People like, I don't need church. I don't need fellowship. You know, I don't need that Bible. Love is love. And we can just love the way we want to love. And, you know, but the problem is, you take a term like that and you make it up. Love can mean hate to some people. And I'll be honest, there are people that they're like saying, I love you. And I'm like, I'm not actually loving your kind of love, if that makes sense. I, I've learned with some people it's actually better to tell them that Jesus likes them than he loves them because they already saw love and what they saw they didn't like at all. God's like, I don't want you to make this up. By the way, since God is perfect and he knows you perfectly and he loves you perfectly, I guarantee you his rule book's going to be the perfect one that makes everything work right. And you're like, nah, I don't like that. Look, at, I'm going to be honest with you, there's a lot of things I read in scripture that I naturally don't like. Because they, they revolve around me being selfless and forgiving my enemies and things that there's no part of me naturally wants to do. But that doesn't make it not true. I also am not a fan of gravity most of the time. I'm a fan of the fact it's holding everything in its place right now. I'm not a fan of what it does to my body. You know, It's not doing anything complimentary to my body right now. But it's like, just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. And Yahu now has this promise of comfort. Yeah, you know what? I'm not going to have to get off the throne. I'm going to make it to death with this thing. Now hear me on this. Let me, see how this. let me tell you how this plays out with some of us as Christians. There's this argument. So, are you once saved, always saved? If you've accepted Jesus Christ, could you not ever lose that salvation? Well, it seems like such a goofy, goofy argument in the first place. Imagine, I'll, I'll, I'll play with Adam and Angel since they're our resident married couple here at the moment. Imagine Adam and Angel are getting married and, uh, and we're there right before the wedding and Adam turns to me and he goes, so, if I sleep around 
Am I technically still married? Can I lose my wife for that? I'm like, I don't even, I think the fact you're asking says something, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, you're like, dude, you are showing way too many cards on your chest right now. Thank you for that. And, and then I would say, well, you know what? Why don't you wait here? And then I would say, Angel, here, by the way, I just called you an Uber. And we're going to wait on this. Now, the, the reason I say that is, is that you're like, well, you know, and by the way, I don't believe I can lose my salvation because it's found in Christ and I have no intent on ever leaving that. In the sense of, I know where my salvation is. My life is hidden in Christ and God. Colossians 1 or 3, 1 through 3 makes that clear. But I'm not arguing over that as a doctrinal perspective. I'm arguing that from the perspective of my intent to be full in. I have no intent to leave at any point. That doesn't mean I'm going to live perfectly. By the way, married people don't live perfectly either. But I'll tell you this. One thing we do do is we commit. I've been walking, praying through this text all day, and I walk by Element, you know, the sort of skate shop. And I walk by, and I see this shirt. And I don't need another shirt, but I needed this shirt. And it says, commit or quit. Now, any of you ever surf? Yeah, yeah, Adam, we're going to connect for a second here. (laughs) Okay. Well, the bigger the wave, obviously, it isn't that the bigger the wave, it's the more dangerous. The thicker the wave, the more dangerous. Because it's the difference between run over by a tall piece of paper and being run over by a cement mixer. Or by a, by a skyscraper. And we've had those experiences. They're never fun. But there's this point where this, you know, the, the, the velocity of the water is heading to the shore that is now increasing its, in regards to its, its height. So what happens is it starts to push. And as it pushes that starts to collect, and ultimately that starts to keel over. That particular energy starts to move this current like this. And as that current starts to move, it starts to turn. When that wave starts to hit that crest, you have to have already made up your mind. Because one of two things is going to happen at that moment if you're right on that crest. One is you are going to kick in what that means is you are going to commit and you are going to push into this thing and you are going in with everything. That is an option. Is that what people do when it's like they're surfing on it inside the wave? Yeah, when they're tubing it. Yeah, when people are like tubular, what does that mean? That's what it means because if you've ever been where water surrounds you on all sides, it is a very surreal experience. Very surreal experience. And you know at any moment I can go, hey, check me out, and you're gone. You know, it is an amazing thing. But I'll tell you what else happens. You could stay on that crest and just try to decide. Well, what happens is that crest then goes, uh, and it just spits you. It's called going pearl diving or getting pitched. And you get thrown. But that's not the end of the story. So you know where you get thrown? In the trajectory of where the wave's going to land. So you're like, Ah, you're rising like, should I, should I? Too late. And you are thrown, and then the wave goes, and then you kind of come up and you're like, and then the wave goes, and then you're like in a washing machine for the next 20 minutes, just praying death might be a good idea, and maybe Gitmo was actually not so bad after all. And, and the reason I say that is, life is like that in a lot of cases, but Jesus is like this. And any relationship worth having should be like this. You don't go, well, I don't know, maybe I'm in, maybe I'm out, because you're going to get pitched, and it's going to fall on you. And here's the good news. 
how many sins did Jesus, would have Jesus had to have done to not be qualified to pay for your sin? One. Because he had to be a perfect sacrifice or it wouldn't work. Can you imagine living your whole life knowing that at any given moment you do one wrong thing and all the bets are off? Every person goes to hell. Talk about pressure. Let's add to that. People are lying about you. They're pushing your buttons. Come on, man. Who do you think you are? Right? And you've got all the religious people who you were dying for. Misrepresenting you. Which one of you wouldn't want to rip off their head at one moment? Then blindfold you. Have some guy smack you down and then say, All right, hotshot. Prophesy. Who hit you now? Which one of us wouldn't go, hit me again and let's find out? You're ahead, you know. I mean, the problem is I'm a bit creative, and I'm enough creative to think of really horrible, horrible ways for this to go from that point on. But one moment of retaliation, and all bets are off. One moment. Now, this is why I say that. That's what all in looks like. All in is not just all in intellectually. All in is all in your heart. All in is in a place where you're ready so that when that moment comes, you're already ready because you're already all in. And I'll be honest with you. There's a huge, huge difference between being full on and being full in. Being full on means if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it crazy in front of you. And here's our problem with Yahoo. I remind you, everything he has done has been in the public eye. Until it came time for his heart. When it came time for his heart, he was not full in. Full on in front of every people, other people. They're like, man, that guy can kill people. Wow, that guy can kill people. But when it came down to it, he wasn't full in in his heart. In Psalm 150, and now we're almost done, a couple of minutes, please know this. In Psalm 150, it tells us to worship the Lord with the sound of trumpets and clanging cymbals, but also with the heart and the lute. Cymbals are loud. Now, the cymbals that are being talked about aren't like those big ones you see in a symphony. They're, they're, they're about this size, the little ones, and they, they have this really profound ding, and it's a very loud ding. It's usually at the end of a statement made when you're telling a story in a song. And then this happened. Remember those days, some of you were old enough, where you had to listen to things and to turn the page, you heard this ding, and you're like, okay, turn the page, and then you're going to read along with it. Well, that's kind of the idea. But it is extremely loud and very, very clear and precise. It's clarion. But a trumpet's never quiet. You can put a mute in it, and okay, you sound a little bit like Miles, and that's good and all, but it's still not quiet. But a harp is not a loud instrument. Any of you ever heard metal harp before? You know, harp, death metal. No, I haven't either. I'm sure probably in Norway somewhere it probably is happening, maybe in Germany in a couple places. But, but and the reason is it's a very, very quiet instrument. Now please hear me on this. We are to worship God with both. We use the term harp time. And what harp time is, is that quiet time when it's just you and God. That is so important. Because if you can't have good harp time you're not going to have good trumpet time. If you have just trumpet time, you're Yahoo. 
It's all loud, and it's, you're calling people in, and people, check me out, watch me speak in tongues, I'm going to lay hands on everyone. And okay, I'm not saying these are bad. Remember, we worship God with both. But your whole walk with God cannot be just in front of people. So your prayer life, how much of that's in front of people? When you're in the Word, how much of that's in front of people? You realize, if all we've got is what's in front of people... We're going to look a lot like this guy. When the time comes where we feel like we're comfortable, we're going to wander. And you know why God doesn't want you to wander? Because God wants you. That's why. Because He is full on in love with you. He's willing to give His life to redeem you. He's full on. So look at how this ends. You took no heed, verse 31, yet who took no heed to the walk and the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. Notice the term, the very term which God would say in Deuteronomy 6, this is the way I want you to love me. For he did not depart from the sins of Yeroboam who made Israel sin. The one sin, by the way, mentioned by name by a person more than any other in Scripture. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. And Hazel conquered, that's, remember the guy is Syria, conquered them in all the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Aroah, which is by the river Anam. By the way, that's by the way still exists today, the river Anam, that's in Jordan. Including Gilead and Bashan. Now, do you know what he's known for in the end? A guy that killed a lot of people but lost a lot of ground. He kicked up a lot of dust in front of a lot of people and he buried a lot of things in public. But personally, he lost a lot of ground. All of the area east of the Jordan now, that today is called Jordan, was lost by this king. The rest of the Ephesians, Yehu and all that he did and all of his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? The answer, of course, is yes, they are. So Yehu rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. Then Yehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the period that Yahweh reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. Look at this. We go to prayer. Let me just say this. Would you agree that Yahweh was a passionate man? I'd say you can't kill all those people without being a passionate person. Zealous. Zealous. Yeah, let's go there. But let me say it this way. If the enemy cannot defeat your passion, he'll have to divert it. If you've ever, you know, we used to, we ran our own dojo, and one of the things, God, I teach that. And one of the things we've taught is, is that you, it's nonsense to try to stop a punch versus push it away, because you have to, you have to receive the full impact of that punch that's coming at you, and that just doesn't, that's that's silly. But if you can move it, you've done the same thing and better, because now you've put that person in a place. Where they're, where they're actually disadvantaged. Having raw zeal, Paul would say, about Israel. Oh, they have a zeal for God. It's just not in accordance with knowledge. Get that. To have a drive and a passion with no focus, well, you just blow up. And I'm here to let you know that as we go to the Lord in prayer, let me ask you something first. 
Jesus didn't die for you to join a church, but He'll want you to be part of the family. He didn't die for you so you would worship Him, though you will find yourself doing so. He didn't die for you so you would serve Him, though you would. He didn't die for you so you could go to heaven, though you will. He died for you to be with you. Because the guilt and the shame and the filth that we carry, He wants off of you. How could anyone love you and let you walk with all that? And my Jesus is full on. Have you accepted that gift? His death at the cross to pay for it all and His resurrection to make you a new person. Have you accepted that? But Jesus doesn't ask you just to agree with Him. He wants you to follow Him. And today, the wave is breaking. And you need to commit. But what if you're in that place where you're prone to wander? And yet... In our wandering, we're praying, God, give me a comfortable life. And God's like, why would I give you a comfortable life if it would make you wander? Why would I do that? Because nothing's more important to Him than your relationship with Him. What if we pray tonight, God, could you make me fall on for you, even as you are for me? Because tonight, what if we really did fall in love with God like He created us to be? Could you imagine, not just how much better the world would be, though it will be, but if the best we have basically fulfills a Michael Jackson song, we are really missing the point. He wants you, and He wants you to want Him like He wants you. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for Yahoo's example, but also the warning that comes with it. I want to thank you, God, for the warning here that though he may have been full on for others, there was a caveat of compromise. And that caveat of compromise clearly put him in a place where we would see so much more than just a guy who had passion or had fury. For 600 years, the east of the Jordan has belonged to Israel, and now it's gone. And sad to say, of all of the 19 kings in Israel, Yahu would be the best. But he wasn't good. Compared to David, he was nowhere close. And God, I want more than your fury. I want your friendship. I want to walk with you. And it's interesting, in these two chapters, I've never seen him pray. I've never seen him get on his face and seek you. I've never seen him talk to you or listen for you. Keep me from this. Keep me from somebody who's just full on but not full in. And I pray tonight, if there's anyone who has yet to really say yes to you, that tonight would be the night, they would say yes. And a simple prayer to start that relationship. I know you want me. I know you died for me on the cross. I know you rose again. And you did all of that for me to say yes to you. And I say yes to you. I don't have to understand everything else to know that if you want me, I say yes. 
begin my life with you now, please. Help me to learn how to have that relationship with you. But God, I pray not just for those who may be reconciling that in their heart right now, and I know your Holy Spirit is working, but for any of us who have made claim to you, and we've said yes, but we've said yes-ish, Pray tonight, God, that that would change. You would take us, Lord, seriously in a way that would revolutionize our hearts. God, I pray that you would reignite within us that passion to love you with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds and our strengths and not look like the world. but to look like you. Keep us from being diverted in our passions. Keep us from being distracted in our pursuit. I pray tonight that you would revolutionize our hearts in this. In Jesus' name.